I'm Dagny Forrest, a member of the editorial and podcast teams here at Painted Bride Quarterly. Slushies, we have another reissue for you from seasons past. Episode 27, Suicides and Skeleton Jazz, was devoted to two poems by Rita Banerjee. Rita was recently appointed director of the MFA program for writers at Warren Wilson College, where our own Jason Schneiderman is part of the teaching faculty. You can read her fully updated bio in the show notes. Incidentally, in this episode, our Jason is exceptionally quiet, an unusual hiccup in our usually high recording quality. I hope you'll enjoy this episode as much as I did, captivated by moments like this one from Banerjee's The Suicide Rag. As we fell, face forward, hands locked and stiff, the only thing that could have come between us was a kiss. slush pile. Once again, we're doing something new and different. We're in my office. We've never <laughs> been in my office before, but we're hoping that because it's smaller, um, that when we talk into the black ravioli, um, which is also known as the microphone, um, it'll be even better. So let's, we'll see. We'll see. So um, in my office is me. I'm Kathleen Volkmiller. And I run the graduate program in publishing here, and I publish essays mostly. And um, on my right is Sarah Eikitt, who is our fabulous current editorial um, co-op. Fabulous, yes, that's me. No, um, I'm Sarah Eikitt, and I'm a third-year English major here at Drexel. And like Kathy said, I am the current editorial assistant for PBQ. And she got her first publication two days ago. Oh my gosh. I did ask her permission to tell you that. <laughs> Woohoo! Yay, Sarah. That's great, Sarah. Yeah. Okay. And on my couch is Tim Fitz. And I've been teaching here at Drexel for a few years. And I've been reading with the Painted Bride Quarterly for uh, a little over three years now, about three and a half years. And uh, I'm the author of The Soju Club, which is translated into Korean and available mostly in South Korea and a short story collection to come out this spring with Mad Hat Press called Hypothermia. And did you introduce yourself? I did. I had the flu last week and my brain is still a little bit porous. <laughs> and there's a chance I may, I haven't had the coughing jag yet, the big one in the last few days, but it may happen. Oh, I have some special herbal things. Let me well, grab I'm, them and have them at the ready. Um, yeah, yeah. So Tim's brain is a little bit on the tasty cake side of things. Yeah. Uh, but we still have um, our core four to introduce. So I guess let's stay in the country and go to New York next. Hi, it's Jason Schneiderman. I am in my office in lovely Tribeca. I don't have a window, so I have no idea what the weather is like. Cold. <laughs> I want a window. Is that clear? I'd like a window in my office. <laughs> like, I, I'd have to move offices. Like, you can't, there's no like, it's not like I could just break through and create a window. Like, <laughs> Me either. I would just be in another hallway. Right. <laughs> I'm just saying I want a window. Okay. Marion is surrounded by windows, I think. Are you in your apartment that is filled I with am. windows? I am surrounded 
True. This is true. Um, this is Marion Wren. I'm, I'm calling in from NYU at, in Abu Dhabi, where I direct the writing program here. Um, and it is, uh, what time is it? About 8.15. It's pitch black outside. I'm looking at um, the city of Abu Dhabi slightly off in the distance. Um, and I don't know if I've ever explained it this way, but the NYU campus is a little bit like... Um, a cruise ship parked in Queens. <laughs> if you live in Manhattan and can imagine Queens in relationship to Manhattan, the, the campus is just like a little outside the city and parked on a lovely island. So that's the image I want you to think about tonight, that it's pitch dark and I'm on a cruise ship parked in Queens. Oh, Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I feel like I can picture it so well because I've Skyped with you so often and you've given me tours <laughs> on the computer. I have. Kind of like, it, yeah, and it's, it's sort of like, I would call it what you said, but then also outer space. Yes, we do like call it the spaceship, um, which is, by the way, Arabic for happiness. So I technically oh. live on ha happiness island. So there you go. That. <laughs> well, that's a good place to live. Yes. Dear Donald Trump, greetings, <laughs> happiness island. Maybe we could move him there. Yes. Um, <laughs> Thank you, No. <laughs> okay, so today we have um, two poems by Rita Banerjee, and uh, we're so honored and excited to read her work, and I guess we're going to start with the suicide rag, and I'm wondering who would like to read that for us. I nominate Tim. Tim? Tim. Okay. Tim, Tim, Tim. The suicide rag. Billy played ragtime on the church organ, but we lunch our kids kept time by another name. Behind St. Augustine's, we learned to hit the pavement, sound like an anvil crack, hammers hitting steel. Billy playing skeletons on the fifth, we arpeggioed, haloed, froze on the blacktop, learning to cakewalk. This was our battle. Tarmat babies doing hand-sprung suicides with the girls standing around with knife-like eyes. That's all we needed, a rolling beat, firing squad and schoolyard skirts. Scouring the lot as we fell face forward, hands locked and stiff. The only thing that could have come between us was a kiss. Okie dokie. Thank you, Tim. Um, I didn't say this before, so I'll say it now. You can find this poem, listeners, on our podcast pages. Um, I don't know what episode this will be, but somewhere in the 20s. You should find it easily. Looking for Rita Banerjee. Um, if you would like to read along. Um, so this is a long and skinny poem, and I think that's what made me remember that we should have talked about it visually on the page. Uh, the lines are uh, almost all about three words, and um, the stanzas are three line stanzas. So it's a long and skinny, short riffs, dare I? Mm. Gary sent up my fingers this, and say This poem that. for me changed dramatically between when I read it the other day in my head and reading it out loud. Yeah? Yeah, I, I liked it a lot more reading it out loud. Well, it's very rhythmic. Yeah. It has a natural perpetual motion to it. Yeah, and from like a fiction point of view where I don't have the same type of uh, surgical poetic eye like Jason does, but what looking, when I read this, I see, I love how the, the lines jump from one stanza to the next. Mm -hmm. it, I was in my mind. I was thinking that we're going to stop between each stanza, but then they kind of leapfrog each other and really pull you along. What's that? 
usually creates kind of a um, touch and go child's play, kind of like the rhythms of tag or the rhythms of, of jump rope, where something's kind of moving very quickly and then stopping and then restarting. Yeah, yeah. What what is skeletons? I don't know what that is. Police and skeletons. Is that like is that still the music or is that is that a schoolyard bit? What's a schoolyard bit? Like, fine for that. You know what? I pictured like in cartoons when people play skeleton bones, you know, and they're like yeah. getting xylophone. Um, well, you know, it's funny that you say you say that too. Like, I I don't know if that's a reference to like a musical move or a dance move, but it says Billy playing skeletons on the fifth, so it must be like something that he's doing on the keyboards of that organ, um, and it so it and it sort of echoes with or resonates with doing suicides. And um, so it's called Suicide Rag. And can you, can you all help me with this? Like, I think a suicide in, in um, breakdancing is when the dancer sort of like falls on their back, right? So doing handsprung suicides means like that breakdance move of like, like being like totally horizontal, like flipping back horizontal or then, and then jumping back up, right? Am I right about that? I think uh, you are. Uh, okay. According to Wikipedia, as a b-boy move, the suicide is a self-drop. I love that Wikipedia just confirmed my 1980s deep reference. Lived hip-hop. Sure. And skeleton jazz is a term. So that's a real thing, too. So it all works. Okay. Um, yes, my my hunch is it would be sort of like staccato arpeggios, something like that, where you a lot of sh short uh, staccato notes. That's my yeah. guess. Well, I like the parallelism between um, Billy playing ragtime on the church organ. I like that alone, <laughs> playing ragtime on the church organ. And um, the kids with that kind of music they're playing to in their minds on the lunch hour. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I love like the parallel between those a lot. You know, you can see it so well. The girls in their schoolyard skirts. You know, Catholic kids being bad. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> sure. And and then the suggestion of sex at the end, right? The only thing that could have come between us would be kiss. That like all of right. this tension is like really building up to something erotic. Right. As it always um, so I, I want to just jump in and, and say something that's probably not at all um, Rita Banerjee's intention, but is evocative for me, right? Which is um, when my dad was alive, he was, a, he was a church organist. He was a concert organist, right? And his name was Billy, right? And so it's trippy for me to like enter into this poem. And that's just total personal aside information, right? So the other thing that she actually does get right, and I don't know if this is something in her knowledge, but um, I can remember my, my dad and his friends and, and an uncle who actually recently passed um, talked about how much fun they had playing jazz on the church organ, playing jazz on the church piano, right? The, the sort of like... Um, the, the sort of risk and play of that, like, you, you know, using the organ for like playing these like, you know, big monstrous sacred music, you know, mm -hmm. Sunday uh, mass tunes, right? But then also playing like the maple leaf rag 
on that organ and then like making the church vibrate with a different kind of music. Yeah. Um, and my mom, my mom still talks about how much she loved it. You know, when, when my dad would do that or my uncle George would do that. So, so again, you know, Banerjee is probably not, you know, intending to rock my world in the way she does, but she does. Right. So I'm in by line four, like what, what, what she's, <laughs> it's a poem about organ music. What? <laughs> and then I love that juxtaposition with, with B-boys, right? With the kids in the, in the back on the basement doing, you know, these sort of risky moves in their adolescence or in their teenage mm -hmm. years, you know? A lovely combination. Um, middle school, sorry. What's that? Were you friends with the breakdancers? Did you know the breakdancing crews? Oh, are you kidding? I had a graffiti jacket. I was part of that whole, like, you know, cross your arms and stand tough. We would stand in circles. I couldn't dance to save my life, but I definitely had a graffiti jacket. And, and your, hair tagging was really, your hair was really high. It was really oh. high. And my, my tagging name was Rio, R-I-O. And I used to run around the neighborhood um, with my friend, Jeff Kaleo. And he would drive around and we would try to spray paint things. And he was really good at it. But I could never, could never quite tag with any sort of coherence. I think we should. We're gonna have to bleep that out. You just named. Yeah. <laughs> Busted, right? We're all going to graffiti jail. You know, thirty years hence. I, I was watching Working Girl last night. And <laughs> oh, that hair was real. People really had that hair. Yeah, man, that was that was a serious commitment. Sorry, I've taken this out of the poem. Um, yes. <laughs> bring us back to it. Was saying, um, do, do you think, because I feel like this, this scene is very familiar. Like I've, I've seen this kind of schoolyard scene a lot in poetry, definitely taking back like Major Jackson's work. I was just wondering, like, I mean, do you guys feel like this is, like, does that familiarity, like, I mean, for, I mean, obviously it's resonating for Marion in this like incredibly personal way. Um, but what, what just, just that this is like such a frequently romanticized, um, location and setting and, and population and activity? Well, the thing that is different for me is that last stanza that, that where um, the only thing that could come between us was a kiss. For me, that reminds me of the type of intimacy that you have when you play with other musicians, where it feels like Dave Mustaine, uh, the guitar player and songwriter for Megadeth said, when you play in a band, it's the closest you can come to people without having sex. And there is a really strange and beautiful type of intimacy you get, when you, especially when you're improvising music and everyone's bouncing ideas off each other non-verbally, uh, just through eye contact or things you're doing with notes. It blows your mind every time you do it. Mm -hmm. And and you, you do feel, I mean, you you can go 20 years without talking to these people and you can run into them and you catch up in a heartbeat because you've been to that place with them. And um, it's, for me, I, I like how Marion is seeing it from that angle, but I do think that uh, the poet is commenting on, because breakdancing and all that is very similar. Everyone's bouncing ideas off each other and they're, they're building mm -hmm. off of one person's moves and the other. I like that. Yeah, and you know what, Jason, I, I would say everybody's going to find their own way in here. I, Sarah might have something to say as a Catholic school girl. Oh I went to Catholic school for a tiny bit, but I think we romanticize this scene because we know it, because we do know it, and everybody, you know, the other day I saw something where the kids were doing that, um, 
Oh, 20th Century Women. Highly recommend that film, everybody. Um, but they did that thing where you hyperventilate and somebody squeezes you behind your, you know, on your chest. Yeah. And you yeah. pass out. And I remember when boys did that in school at lunchtime. And I was thinking, watching it now, like, who the hell was letting us get away with that? How were we doing that? And, and the... <coughs> You know, this this poem reminds me of that too. Like the risks they're taking out there on the schoolyard. It, it, that you know, it's so funny. Like here we are at a Catholic school. It's only lunch hour. It's not two in the morning. We haven't snuck out of our bedrooms. You know, it's full on daylight, and we're taking every risk we can. So I I I dug it for that reason. I was transported right back to those kinds of risks. You know, I think, I wonder if that's what's so interesting about breakdancing is the risks aren't really risks, but if you fail, it's a, the social risk is high. Yeah. Because nobody looks dumber than a breakdancer who can't do a move. Mm-hmm. And, um, mm-hmm. or a musician who plays the wrong thing. And so you have this, um, or if you're at a jazz club and you sit in with the band and you mess up, I don't think you can go back to the club anymore. <laughs> you can't just put it done. So the stakes are high. Yeah. You're not gonna you're not gonna suffer physically, but it feels in some ways uh, worse. But it's it's a great place for young people to explore music and writing and breakdancing, all that right. stuff is right. So Tim, I, I think it was Jason a moment ago, um, when you Jason, when you were asking that question about like does this feel fresh, right? Like it's, it's, you know, trodden territory. Does it feel fresh, right? What is it that draws us to it? And you mentioned Major Jackson, right? I think it was you who mentioned Major. Um, and I'm thinking, like, you know, right. There, his his um, great poem, Blunts, uh, in the book, um, Leaving Saturn, right, is the, the scene of that poem is a handful of young men standing, you know, in a doorway, smoking a blunt and you know making plans for the future right like like their aspirations like sort of breathing into each other and standing in a circle and and you know this one wants to be a you know uh, a poet and and her, the friend says oh so you want the tongue of god right and then they collapse into laughter and it's too late they were tragically hip right um that like that that scene does echo this, but this this one I think, as everybody's saying, is slightly different because it is um, that Catholic school like setting, and the stakes are so high, right? Like it's not just the intimacy of of this group of dancers, but the group of dancers being watched and witnessed right by these girls, right? Or the sort of knife eyes, right? Like the the I, Tim, I, this is where I think you're right. It's like that performance, that risk of performance, right? Like, they're teenagers, they're dancing, it's high stakes, and if they screw up, they're not coming back to the club. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry, I barely heard that, Jason. It's communal in a way that's almost painterly, that it doesn't ever mm-hmm. settle. Like, usually, you know, poetry will settle on a single subjectivity or, you know, one kind of speaker or a character mm-hmm. or persona, and this never does mm-hmm. that. It really stays mm-hmm. at this kind of remove. Mm-hmm in which the entire scene is sort of, it almost like makes me think of like a Richard Scarry book or a mm-hmm. Bosch painting or, you know, like something where you had this really big landscape and you're watching kind of all of these characters within it. 
Yeah. It never comes to a me. It stays at a we. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. So. Yeah, but uh, Jason, I like that. It really never does sort of hone in on that, that, as Kathy put it, that me. So it doesn't do that sort of like POV, cinematic, over the shoulder, right, move. It, it really stays at a kind of landscape, patriarchy um, scale, which is cool. Well, what do you guys think? Do you think we're ready to vote? Do it. Sounds like we are. Okay. One, two, three, vote. You're going to laugh. I mean, we have I Ryan, our sound engineer today, so he's going to look for um, Abu Dhabi in New York. It's a unanimous yes. I never reveal the score unless it's unanimous, but it's unanimous. So high five to uh, Rita Banerjee. Um, yay. And yay for PBQ, so thank you. When I said Ronnie's bash, I meant Peter Bruegel. Bruegel, sorry. But you know what? The bash works too, right? That does. Oh. It does, right? Like if you, yeah. Bosch is a little more like fantasy. Right. The bash is a nastier reference. <laughs> right? I, I have no idea what you're talking about. But I don't know if you should explain it or not, because we have one more poem to do. <laughs> okay, so Georgia Brown, who'd like to read that? I'll go for it. All right, Sarah. Go ahead, Sarah. Publish Sarah. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Georgia Brown. Harlem had yet to be born. The globe had not been spun. But we knew how to whistle, how to call clappers and skirts on cue. That summer, we first met Georgia. She was an echo and four beats. We learned to hum her story. Mike played her with a licked reed, but she was all brass, sharp like an abandoned railroad cutting through wild wood. And when she took stage, she made all she made those trombone boys whisper, "Sweet Georgia, sweet." Okay, thank you very much. Nice reading. So this one, as you heard, is shorter, and it's on a tight, compact maybe 14 lines, all grouped in one stanza. No stanza break. Hmm. So what do we know about Georgia Brown? What do we know from this poem about Georgia Brown? I don't know the song, but I don't, I don't really know the poem. Right, so I think the poem is about the song, right? Like, am I right to assume that right? So um, Mike played her with a licked reed, but she was all brass, sharp like an abandoned railroad, cutting through wild wood. And when she took stage, she made those tromboys, bone boys whisper, sweet Georgia, sweet. It's funny, Sarah, I stumble there too, right? It's beautiful. That line, she made those trombone boys whisper, but man, does it make you slow it down in order to speak it. Um, so yeah, I, I actually think the poem is about the song, uh, not necessarily about the person or a person named Georgia Brown. That's my guess. I, I, I think you're right. I think it works more effectively about the song. Um, although it, it certainly personifies the song as a woman. Absolutely. Right, because, all right, so now I'm cheating. I'm going to Google, right? So there was Georgia Brown, she's an English singer, um, in the 19, uh, ooh, nice long life there, right? 1933 through 92. Um, George Brown, who's a Brazilian singer, died in 
uh, no, she was born in 1980. Um, and then you got Georgia Brown, the song. Um, but I don't know. I feel like the, the sort of technicalities of Wikipedia might not well, I, you know, I, be the I, thing to do. I, I mean, I feel like you get sent to Wikipedia in part by Harlem had yet to be born. Mm -hmm. Wonder, you know, when if, if Harlem is working as a shorthand here for black culture and jazz and music, um, you know, then you, then you're sort of thinking like, well, when when is before that, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and on all the things that we're finding about um, Sweet Georgia Brown would, would place it all in the twenties, which would be, you know, the height of the Harlem Renaissance. Right. I'm right here with you, Jason. Yeah. And so, and so it sort of makes, it makes the Har Harlem had yet to be born, but I mean, that can be more personal. If that, if that doesn't have to be read historically, that can kind of be read about like, you know, them creating, um, these musicians kind of creating their own Harlem through the music mm -hmm. that they create. And it's, mm -hmm. I think that works a little more effectively. What, yeah. what do you do with the second line then, right? So Harlem had yet to be born, right? The globe had yet to be spun. So you've got this like double whammy of like time and space and place, right? Um, but third line, that's where you get that turn. But we knew how to whistle, how to call clappers and skirts. So it's like, you know, without Harlem, we knew, or with, with like in, in the prehistory of that cultural moment, right? We knew how to, how to do this, right? This song, this, right? And then that summer we first met Georgia. She was an echo in four beats, right? So it's like, you know, I'm a, melons strolling on two tendrils, right? The, the sort of metaphor is doing the work of personifying the song as a person, right? Or the person as an image. So yeah, so the question I'm asking is what about those two lines, right? Harlem had yet to be born, the, glo the globe had yet to be spun. Had not been spun. Oh yeah, sorry, had not been spun. <laughs> I, I, like, I like it personally being about people who haven't sort of discovered the world that they're invited yet. Mm, nice. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I read it as like a transition from global to personal, like a transition from the external world so that you as the reader know where we are in time and space, if you said Marion, um, into a transition of, to the personal of, of this we and where these few people are in their personal lives. So. I read those first two sentences as a grounding almost. Mm -hmm. For me, this one is not as evocative as the first one, but I don't know as much about music. I think the music is in the poem. I, mean, I think ultimately, like I, I'm, I mean, Google is wonderful, but I'm, I'm still kind of a new formalist at heart. Mm -hmm. um, and still kind of think that everything has to be inside the poem. And obviously it can't, obviously like, you know, if you, if you, if you, just cut out of like a bubble, you wouldn't know what Harlem means. And obviously we all have a resonance. Um, but I do, I do feel like it contains enough to kind of um, carry us through. Mm -hmm. I, really I played her with a licked reed, but she was all brass mm -hmm. and railroad cutting through wild wood. And in a certain way, I mean, I guess if, if this were from another poet, I might be suspicious of it as kind of misogynistic that we're talking about the, you know, the, the changing something non-human into a woman who is then sexually um, inhabited and used might have resonances that I'd be disturbed by. But I, I think here it works really nicely. I mean, either way, like this poem is um, 
the word I'm looking for. Um, in a way, it is misogynistic. I don't know. Um, I had to look up what a clapper was, <laughs> and I learned that that's another word for a stripper. So, like, um, this view, there is a slight misogynistic, um, like, tone throughout it. So, yeah. No, yeah. <laughs> I had to look it up. Wow. Yeah. We're all on the side of strippers though, aren't we? Like, right? Like, we're all, we're all pro-stripper. Oh, totally, yeah. But, but there is this, um, this view of women, this, um, yeah, no. <laughs> I thought those were like, the, the clappers were the dancers in the fringe dresses. Yeah, but. Yeah, but not yeah. strippers. So, I thought those were flappers. Uh -huh. <laughs> That's what you <laughs> And I thought clappers were inside of a bell. Right? Aren't, aren't those clappers, right? I thought clapper was a thing you buy to shut your lamps off. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was, it was also a very, it was a that you could never get away from. Yeah, but um, wait, Sarah, Sarah, man, that really changed. Look at that. But we knew how to whistle, how to call clappers and skirts on cue. Exactly. And yeah. clappers referring to like strippers and skirts. That's just another way of sort of like objectifying a woman, right? Um, yeah. That's interesting, right? I think objectifying is the word I want, but um, not, I don't, I think stripper is the wrong word, but basically like to clap is a, an erotic dance. So someone who, yeah, so it, it's, uh, clapping is a form of uh, erotic dance. So a clapper <laughs> is someone who performs that. So, but yeah, like with that knowledge, the, the rest of the poem, the tone of the poem changes. All right, well, I've got to go deep Google and figure out this erotic clapping dance. <laughs> you know that not now. No, I don't know if I can articulate. I'll, I'll be back. Give me a not minute. Now. I don't know if I can articulate exactly why, but it seemed, the first poem seems to me as if it was written by someone who has experienced dancing or playing music or has lived this life. Mm -hmm. The second one does not read like a musician or a dancer. Hmm. I don't know what hmm. that that doesn't necessarily make it good or bad. It's just that I feel I feel like it's written by someone on the outside of the music world, someone on the outside looking in and playing that role. So it doesn't to me seem quite as genuine. And I'm not sure looking through what words are doing that. I maybe it's the licked read kind of exoticizes music in a way, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. It just creates a little space between um, the poem and I think what she might be trying to get at. So I guess that's, mm -hmm. it doesn't shine for me like it does on the page in my mind, if that makes sense. I agree with you, Tim. Well, you know, it's funny. I, can't, I keep thinking about these clappers, right? Because when I first read it, I, I just took them as like castanets, right? Like those little like clickety clackety things, right? Mm -hmm. And it's funny like that the conversation spun around that word as much as it did because it's like now I can't unhear it in the same way that I, because it's called Georgia Brown and the last line is sweet, Georgia's sweet. Like it is really hard to read this poem and not have the song, Sweet Georgia Brown, so loud in your ears, right? That you can actually dial it back, dial the volume down low enough that you can read the poem here, right? Like it's, it, it, it feels like it's sort of like overdetermined around the title of the song or the, the lyrics of that song a little bit. And I wonder if that contributes to what you're expressing, Tim, like the, um, 
the way it lacks the sort of the sort of edgy shininess, right? That yeah. that you're looking for. But I have to say, like even so, I kind of dig it, right? Like even even the song is so like tuned up for me. I I do like what she's got happening um, in these images. I think that's I I kind of feel like that's the strength of the poem that it it really does kind of call on like a cultural. Um, a, a cultural, a shared cultural knowledge, but also, I mean, for most people, and I would say of like our generation, Sweet Georgia Brown, is kind of an oldie, right? That it's it's sort of like hard to imagine how sexual jazz was in the nineteen twenties and thirties because it's you know we've grown up on like these tamed Muzak versions, and even the even the slang, you know, like boogie woogie, refers to tertiary syphilis. Right, that's what um, and, you know. A lot, you know, like Jelly Roll is slang for vagina, right? Like, and all of these songs yeah. about Jelly Roll Morton, um, and and we've lost, you know. I mean, jazz itself means to have sex. I'm I'm not using the f word because we're podcasting, but <laughs> uh, so I mean, I I feel like there's a way in which, like, the fact that we all know this song, but we know this song in like a very tame version that we might sing along in the car with our family, mm-hmm. and. With, is kind of reinscribing that with like the incredibly um, transgressive sexuality that it would have had in its origin. I think it's kind of the power of the poem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's the beautiful thing about those words and the music is that when it's not overt and you get to all those places on your own terms, so you can listen to it when you're nine and you're just listening mm-hmm. to jazz, but when you're listening to it when you're older, you're listening to jazz and they're two different okay. things. Mm-hmm. Well, listen, I, I, I appreciate the distinction, right? Because I grew up listening to Sweet Georgia Brown as a Harlem Globetrotter song, right? Like, it is absolutely tied to a kind of, like, comedy, right? Athletic comedy, right? The, 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 the glory of the Harlem Globetrotters, right? And not the Ella Fitzgerald version. Like, the Ella Fitzgerald version is only something that, like, as an adult, I came to hear, understand, right? Which is, I mean, that's just a different totally different scale of this song, right? Uh, Harlem had yet to be spun, the globe had not been spun. I mean, I'm, I'm realizing oh. that Harlem Globetrotters is in there. It's right there. Ha! Uh, but, but I was, I was going to say that it's it's a lot like, you know, it's like when I take my nephew to see a Jackson Pollock, huh. and when you go to yeah. Pollock, everyone knows, children know how to look at a Jackson Pollock because it's in a mm-hmm. museum and they're told like, okay, this is good. That's really different from looking at it in like the 1940s or 50s when you're like, what mm-hmm. is that? Mm-hmm. Right? And I really think that, I, I do want to kind of keep making the argument for this poem as kind of reminding us of how shocking that work was in the moment, even though it's become tamed and accessible in ways that it couldn't have been in that time. Yes, yes, yeah, thank you. I think you just, you just turned my head. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, that sounds like you. Huh, okay. Harlem had yet to be born, her globe had not been spun. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> That's good. Shall we vote? We shall. Okay. One, two, three, vote. <laughs> Okie dokie, it's in. Yay, Rita Banerjee. <laughs> yeah. Two for two today. I always love that. Um, yeah, so exciting, exciting. Um, thank you, Rita. 
And you can find these um, poems again on our pages on uh, PBQ's site. You can uh, comment on what you have to think about them and clappers and all of, uh, all of this um, on our Facebook event page that corresponds to this episode. Um, so, you know, the thing about never knowing when we're gonna um, drop these means that we can't be that topical but um, I will say that I'm, I'm excited about EWP, and I'm sure we'll um, refer back to it at some point um, on, on an episode. Um, we will be um, co-hosting a literary death match at the Black Cat in Washington. Oh, like um, with the Black Cat? Yes. yes. I used to go there in college. Well, <laughs> what else is kind of amazing is that that's where uh, Mary and I attended our first literary death match and said, we got to get in on this. We got to um, get us one of those. <laughs> yeah. So we've held several in, in Philly and um, at, I think pretty much every AWP since. Um, mm -hmm. So excited to uh, for that as well. So I'm sure we'll report at some point um, on our site and on the show. Um, does anybody else have anything to say? I, I guess I did. I did love 20th Century Women. Haven't seen it yet. Oh, run, run, run <laughs> there in the Happiness Island. Got to be showing somewhere. Uh, I, I would think it's important to watch Flora Foster Jenkins. Yes. Uh, laughed and cried in such close proximity. And Meryl Streep is not overrated. <laughs> I, I was lucky enough to see that as a play on Broadway, and it was a miracle to see that live. This was wow. like a decade ago. It was, it really was amazing. That's super cool. That's super yeah. cool. Um, yeah, I hated the movie Boyhood, the movie that everybody loved, and I hated it. We could, I could spend a whole episode telling you why it sucks. Um, but 20th Century Women was kind of like the answer for me of a much better version of the same kind of ideas. Um, so, so yes, I'm Meryl Streep. You got anything, Tim? Yeah, I was talking to a friend of mine who's a librarian. We were talking about ways to promote books published by small presses who don't normally get on the bookshelf. And he said that you should go to your public library, you should get a membership, a free membership, go to the library and give them a short list of three or four books from small presses yeah. that you would like them to carry. And he said they will almost always carry it. So That's every few months, go down to your library with a short list of books on presses that you, where you like authors or just- um, Or specific or authors. Specific authors. Yeah and they'll buy them. And if everyone's doing that regularly, that'll give them enough juice to keep publishing writers. And we can, we got to start working from the ground up because we know it's not going from the top down anymore. We know that in, in all our, in all our major <laughs> industries, right? politics, education, uh, publishing, we got to take on the responsibility ourselves. And this is a really easy way that you can support them without anybody spending any money. They've got the money to spend. They have to spend it or they're going to lose it. Give them a list of books and they'll do it. So I love that idea. Tell all your students and all the listeners. I wonder if there is, if, you know, if there is like, uh, is it like, is there a hashtag for this? Like, is there an organization that 
promote this? We'll have to look into that. Yeah. Yeah. Small press library movement, right? Yeah. If there isn't one, we'll start it. I'm sure Sarah knows how to do it. Right, right. Because we'll her people know out. all things tech. My people, yeah. yes. her people, her millennials. My people will figure this out. Yeah. Um, so we'll Sarah, tell us about the literary magazine that you were publishing because it's kind of interesting. Just the name and what it's about. So um, the title of the magazine is The Cadaverine. It's UK based and they only publish authors under 30. So they wow. sell poems. It's titled Pointless. Um, and so, yeah, they're um, mostly online, so yeah. a little small, but really cool. Yeah. When they actually put our poem up, we'll put it on our news feed. So look, watch uh, for it. We'll do a bit of social media when it's up. So speaking of social media, we're on all platforms. Follow us, easy to find. Um, um, and visit our page and keep reading, right? Yeah. Yeah. All right, thank you. All right. God bless the public library.